0: I want to preach a sermon tonight that I have entitled Mama's Boys. The title does not reveal anything about what the message is about. So I'll give you a subtitle. I'm preaching about servanthood, Mama's Boys. You'll see why in just a minute. Matthew chapter 20, we're going to read verses 20 through 28. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on, your, on the left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. They said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Hallelujah. Mama's boys, James and John, they're mama's boys. I want to first look at a place of honor. So I want to establish context for our our scripture, the text that we just read where James and John come with their mom and they have their mom come to Jesus and begin to ask this favor We're going to back up a little bit to Matthew 19 because we want to set the context because this request begins to make a little bit more sense when you understand the context and the flow of events. So Matthew 19, verses 28 through 30. So Jesus said to them, "'Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones.'" judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So Jesus begins to speak to his disciples about his coming kingdom. He begins to reveal to them the reality that he will sit upon a throne, that he will sit in a place of judgment. And he also speaks to them that you 12 will also sit on 12 thrones and you will assist me in judging and carrying out judgment in my coming kingdom. So he begins to put this idea and this thought into their mind about the possibility of sitting on thrones alongside Jesus. Their minds begin spinning as they're thinking of themselves and they're picturing themselves in these places of tremendous honor, these places of tremendous power and authority and influence on thrones next to Jesus. And he concludes this statement by saying, the first will be last and the last will be first. And I'm sure, just like us, we don't know exactly what that means. But then that began to plant seeds in their mind that, you know what, there's gonna be some kind of pecking order here. There's gonna be some kind of an order of priority involved, the first last and the last first. And so they begin thinking, we're sitting on thrones, and I want to be in the chief place. I want to be the first. I want to be number one right behind Jesus. So these kind of thoughts begin spinning over in their minds. In the beginning of Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells the parable of the workers in the field. The parable where you have the workers that go out and begin laboring at the beginning of the day. Then those that come at the tenth hour and noon and, three and late in the afternoon, and all of these workers that labored in the field, that labored in the harvest, all of them received the same reward. And then he concludes that parable again with this statement, the first will be last, and the last first. And then he says, many are called, but few are chosen. And so again, it's this idea that they're beginning to see that, wow, there's opportunity. There's opportunity to set myself in higher priority, to be chosen, to be selected for the place of chief honor. And then as they're on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus begins to tell them for the third time that he is going to be crucified, that he is going to be turned over into the hands of sinners and crucified, die and rise from the dead. Basically, what the conclusion these disciples are beginning to come to is things are getting ready to go down. Time is winding up. Jesus keeps talking about being captured. He keeps talking about being taken captive and tortured and killed. So in their minds, as they're processing this, sitting on thrones... Ruling from Jerusalem, ruling alongside Jesus, the first will be last, and the last first, and the idea of order of priority, and the fact that time is winding up, that's when we get to our text, and in other words, the conclusion these disciples are coming to is, you know what, if we're going to make our move, now's the time. If we're going to put in our bid, if we're going to put in our petition for that chief place of honor, now is the time that I need to make my move. And this is where James and John come up with this scheme to try and make sure that they secure their place in the chief seats of honor on Jesus' right hand and on his left. And so they bring their mom into this equation. They go with this idea, Mom, can you help us? Come on. You've got to help us manipulate, help us to work this. You want the best for us, right? We're your sons. We're mama's boys. We want this. Help us. So they approach their mom with this idea. In verse 21, she comes to Jesus and says, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. And basically what they are asking, they are seeking the most influential and important places of power and honor and influence in the coming kingdom that Christ is talking about. Those that sit immediately to the right and left of the the ruler, of of the one that is in charge, of the ultimate authority, those are the ones that have the easiest access. Those are the ones that have the most influence. Those are typically the ones that would rule and make decisions and judgments if the leader is gone. So they are vying for this place of the utmost importance. They want to occupy the two most important seats, at least in their minds, right next to Jesus. So make no mistake, these guys were making a very bold move. This was a very bold request that they were making because essentially they wanted to make sure that next to Jesus, they were the ones in charge. They were the ones giving the orders. They were the ones making the judgments, making decisions and determinations and basically bossing all the other disciples around. That's what they wanted. And notice that Jesus didn't rebuke them for this request. Jesus didn't call them out for this desire and say, you devils, get behind me, Satan. He didn't jack them up. He didn't rebuke them. He didn't tell them that that is from hell. And this reveals an important truth in the kingdom of God is that, you know what? God is not against aspiring to excel. God is not against aspiring to achieve great things and aspiring to leadership and aspiring to a place of great influence and great power and authority. God is not against that. In fact, God desperately needs people that will aspire to that, people that will aspire to leadership, that will aspire to a place of influence and authority to exercise kingdom dominion. God needs that. But as we move through this sermon, what you'll see is that God, he is not against desiring that. What he is against is those that seek it with a wrong motivation. And he is against those that will seek it with a wrong mentality about how to obtain it. That's what God is against. And in this message, we're going to look at the contrast between a carnal, worldly understanding of leadership versus a biblical understanding of leadership. And I want to begin this contrast by considering four elements that are at work in our text that reveal that obviously these disciples are functioning from a very carnal and worldly mindset. First, we see the idea of manipulation. James and John thought they could secure this place of of prominence, this place of power and authority by manipulating Jesus and using their mom to do that. Verse 20 says, the mother of Zebedee, of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons. And, and many commentators believe that this woman's name was Salome. Possibly that she was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ, which would make her his aunt. And that would make James and John cousins. And if that is true, then obviously what you see here is an attempt to exploit family relations and exploit to use this relationship. You know, this is my aunt. You know, I want to do what my aunt wants. And they're trying to manipulate the situation and use that family influence to secure for themselves the place of power. And how often we see this at work in the world, people that are in places of power, places of opportunity, because of who they know or because of who they are related to. And, and for many people, this is how leadership works. This is what opens doors and creates opportunities is who you know. Another possibility of manipulation that is at work here is that this woman was one of the, the many women that supported Jesus in his ministry. Scripture tells us that there was, there was numerous women that would follow him and supported him financially, funded their, their work and their labors with food and provisions and all of the needs that they had to continue to function and minister, and she was one of them. And the carnal viewpoint is that that influence purchases a debt. That in other words, because of my contribution, because of how I am supporting you, how I am helping you and contributing to your work, you owe me. You owe me because of what I've given to support you. And you see this in churches many times. People that are, you know, big givers. I've heard of churches in our fellowship. People, families that are big givers, that are influential, that, that do a lot in a church body. And then when their little darling doesn't get the lead role in the Christmas play, they threaten to leave the church and take all of their financial support, take all of their family with them, unless their little darling gets the starring role in the play. This is a carnal mindset about leadership and manipulation. And a word of warning, those of you that desire to go out and pastor and preach, you're going to face this. You will encounter this in your church. You will face this, this threat of trying to manipulate and control and dominate the church because of their influence and the threat of removing their influence, removing their support. This is a carnal mindset about leadership. One more note here, verse 22, but Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you ask. So Remember our scenario, the mother, Salome, James and John's mother is the one that comes and asks this question, and when Jesus begins to respond to this question, he turns from the mother, he's not talking to the mother anymore, he begins to address James and John. He says, you don't know what you ask, and we know that he's talking to them because they're the ones that answer him back. James and John had to work out their own salvation. They couldn't do it through mama. I tell you, church kids, you have to work out your own salvation. You have to work out your own calling. You have to work out your own destiny with God. You can't do it through your parents. God doesn't have grandchildren. God only has children. And parents, you need to release them to do that. You're a fool if you don't allow them. Release them to fulfill the call of God. The next reality, this carnal mindset that we see at work here is pride. James and John had a very false confidence in themselves and their own greatness, their own ability to handle the request that they are making. Again, verse 22, Jesus said, Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink they said to him, we are able. I like the message version. Jesus said, are you capable of drinking the cup I'm about to drink? They said, sure, why not? Let's just say they slightly underestimate their greatness. They had a, a slightly inaccurate view of themselves and their own abilities. I mean, a few days later, Jesus is sweating Blood in the garden, crying out to his father and pleading with these same guys to just pray with him. Just pray. And they've fallen asleep. They can't even serve him in his hour, his most desperate hour of need. They can't even pray with him. And yet, sure, why not? Pride. Now, thank God, ultimately God was able to work in these men and transform them so that they did become capable spiritually of handling the cup that God had for them and they fulfilled their destiny and their calling in God. But at this time, when they're making this request and they're putting themselves forward, thinking that they're ready, thinking that they, in themselves they are capable when clearly they're far from it at this point. The third thing we see here is the idea of privilege. James and John were very strategic in their timing, and they wanted to get their requests submitted first. You know, I have a coworker that loves to submit PTO requests like six months in advance. And it's probably smart because his request is always the first one in. And because it's always the first one on the books, I mean, that kind of gives him priority. He kind of, he's staked his claim. He's already gotten approved. He's gotten his days set. James and John are making sure they're putting in their request first because they feel like this entitles them. We were the first to ask. We're the first ones to put ourselves out there and make this request. We've staked our claim. We've secured it. And you see this mentality at work everywhere today. Many people function with the the opinion and the attitude that they are deserving of something just because they've been around longer than others. You see this in the workplace all the time where the, the primary factor in determining who gets the promotion, who gets the raise, who it is that gets that management opening, well, whoever's been here the longest, doesn't matter if they're a dirt bag, they don't work a day in their life, but they've been somehow they've been here forever, so they get the promotion. Just because you've been around longer, that entitles you to make that claim. And that is what James and John are hoping here is that they are securing their place by virtue of the fact that they were the ones to ask first. And then lastly, we see competition. The actions of James and John in this text, along with the reaction of the 10 disciples, reveal that they are viewing this whole idea and this whole concept of leadership in the kingdom of God as a competition. Verse 24, when the 10 heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. The message version says, they lost their tempers, thoroughly disgusted with the two brothers. And this isn't because they're so holy and they're so spiritual and they recognize the carnality of this request and, oh, you filthy sinners. This is because they didn't think of it first. This is because they're thinking, man, they got their claim in first. Ah, they got priority. And now they're ticked. But the reason they're reacting this way is because they see this as a competition. They see this as it's me against you. You and I are both competing against one another. And this is a common mentality in the world. We see this at work in the Old Testament as well. Joshua displayed this same reaction and this same mentality in Numbers chapter 11. God is raising up leaders amongst the children of Israel. In verse 27, it says, A young man ran and reported to Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' assistant since his youth, protested, Moses, my master, make them stop. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them all. Joshua saw it as competition. Joshua saw these leaders being raised up as encroaching in on his ground. And when he saw two that he didn't approve of, shut them up. Moses, tell him to go back. Tell him to stop. Moses said, Joshua, you're jealous. Do you realize that we are not competing against one another? Do you know that you're not in competition with other disciples in the church for positions of leadership and authority and influence? We're not competitors. We're not against each other. We're not fighting against each other and fighting and clawing and and trying to do everything we can to get ourselves up and pull others down. If you view ministry this way, That is incredibly unhealthy for the church, for the body of Christ. In the physical body, there's something called an autoimmune disease. And this is when your immune system literally begins to fight against your own body. Your immune system begins to malfunction and you begin fighting yourself. And this is what happens in the church if you view ministry, if you view opportunities of leadership and influence, if you view it as a competition with other disciples in the church, that's like an autoimmune disease in the church, fighting against one another. It's not a competition. And in the world, this is how leadership is often viewed, whether it's in athletics or business or education or healthcare, whatever arena of life you're talking about, these mentalities are at work. And many times, these are the driving forces behind people's pursuit of leadership and their desire to get ahead. And the problem is when we bring these mentalities into the church and we begin to try and function with these mentalities and with these approaches within the church, it's going to hinder, if not destroy, the work of God and the unity within the church. And I'm not speaking just in hypotheticals. Our fellowship has been around over 50 years. We've had two very large church splits because of this, because of leadership Competition is how people were viewing it, and they didn't like the way one leader was leading. I can do better, and and it became this me against you and us against them, and it led to splits. A right view of leadership is critical for the unity of the church and for the will of God to move forward. I want to look at the example of Christ. In verse 22... Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And two things that Jesus reveals here in his response to James's John. Number one, they're clueless. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. They have no idea what leadership in the kingdom of God is all about. Their whole mentality is about sitting on thrones. They come to Jesus and they're looking up and they're thinking about sitting on thrones alongside Jesus when Jesus has done the exact opposite. Jesus has left his throne in heaven and come down to earth and humbled himself to take on the form of a human being, a lowly servant. Jesus is leaving thrones behind and they're fighting and clawing to try to get to thrones. They were clueless. The second thing that this response demonstrates is that his life demonstrates true leadership. Jesus said, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? In other words, Jesus is saying, if you want to be a leader, if you want to sit at my right hand and my left, then you're going to have to do what I do. You're going to have to follow my example. It reminds me of the statement Pastor Warner made years ago when people were talking about his ministry and his influence and his skill and his wisdom and ability. Pastor Warner says, no problem. You want what I got? Do what I do. And that is what Jesus is saying. Can you drink the cup that I am drinking? Clearly, James and John were clueless about true leadership in the kingdom of God. Their desire was not evil, but they had a lot to learn. So let's look at the example that Jesus Christ has set. And and obviously, there's many scriptures and many places we could go to consider that. But I just want to look at one, Philippians chapter 2. Paul is writing about the example that Jesus Christ sets in verse 5 through 8. The Living Bible says, "...your attitude should be the kind that was shown us by Christ Jesus, who, though he was God, did not demand and cling to his rights as God, but laid aside his mighty power and glory, taking the disguise of a slave and becoming like men. And he humbled himself even further, going so far as actually to die a criminal's death on a cross." And so Paul captures the essence of Christ and his demonstration of what leadership is. As Paul is writing to the Philippian church, he is admonishing them to embrace the exact same mindset, the attitude, the spirit that Jesus Christ demonstrated in all that he did. That we need to embrace that same mentality Although he was God, creator of all things, supreme authority and dominion over all of creation, in spite of all of that, Jesus willingly laid all of that aside. He put it all down so that he could become a human, step out of heaven and into his creation to be a servant and ultimately to die a horrible death. Why? because we needed him to. He was placing the needs of humanity ahead of his own. He didn't have to do that, but he chose willingly to do that. He humbled himself, because without that, we would all be in hell right now. So the example that we are admonished to follow is Jesus Christ himself. And if we back up a few verses in Philippians 2, Paul is giving some very practical, very clear instruction as to how we can live that out, what that looks like. Verses 3 and 4. The Common English Bible says, Don't do anything for selfish purposes, but with humility think of others as better than yourselves. Instead of each person watching out for their own good, Watch out what is better for others. That's painful. I don't know if you can find a scripture that's more opposite of how we naturally are. The message version says, don't push your way to the front. Can you say potluck? Don't sweet talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Wow. That is tough. That is completely contrary to how all of us function. Our natural bent is to focus entirely upon ourselves to seek what's best for us, to seek what is going to be the most beneficial for us. I don't want to let people in in traffic because I got somewhere I need to be. I go swimming at six in the morning. I love swimming. It's a great exercise. But there's also several people that go to the same place that I do at the same time that I do that also love to swim. And I know when I pull up in the parking lot that I'm going to be fighting for a lane and so God has dealt with me on several occasions when we get there and we're we're all going to there's only, you know, space for six or seven swimmers. And God has dealt with me to get out of the pool and let others take my spot and go swim in the deep end where I'm just kind of piddling around. But it's because of this scripture right here. God says that you should look at other people as more important than yourself. You know what it is more important for this person to benefit from sacrificing and setting aside the time to be here and exercise. I want to let them get it. They're more important than I am. And this is the attitude that we are called to exercise as Christians. This is how we're called to live, to treat others as more important than ourselves, to think about their needs and think about how we can help them instead of always just focusing on how we can help ourselves. Don't do anything for selfish purposes Man, this takes a miracle. Aren't you glad we serve a miracle working God? Reading a book, well, listening to it in Audible called Creativity Inc. It's about one of the guys that was heavily involved in developing computer animation and Pixar and kind of the early stages of developing that whole company and that whole way of creating stories and movies. And he's talking about an interview that he just had with George Lucas. So this is late 70s. Star Wars had just come out and was a box office smash. And so this was, Lucasfilm was like the place to work. And so this particular guy got an interview with them. He goes and he's interviewing with them. And one of the questions they ask him is, uh, actually, the first question they ask him is, who else should we be talking to about this position? And so this guy, without a second thought, he just said, he rattled off like eight or nine names of people that were also heavily involved in the same, you know, development of this whole field of of study. He rattled off all these names. And then later he found out that they had already talked to all those people he named. They had already interviewed all of them. But the funny thing is, they asked all those same people that question, who else should we be talking to? And not one of them named anybody else. Oh, you should only be talking to me. But this guy that, that said, you know, oh, this guy and this guy and this, these guys are all great, these guys are all really smart, that's the one that they chose. Because he wasn't putting himself forward and putting everybody else down. He was honest and open, and, and because of that, they selected him. This is the formula for following the example of Christ is crucifying our tendency to be selfish. And to consider others as more important than ourselves and be more concerned with helping and meeting the needs of others and putting their needs ahead of our own. This is what motivated Jesus Christ to do what he did for us. And in verse 20, for added clarity, or verse 25, I'm sorry, through 27, for added clarity, not only did Jesus address this question with James and John. But as soon as the arguments began and all the other disciples were mad at James and John and and frustrated because they had asked first, Jesus said, oh, I got to deal with this because these, these guys have no clue about leadership. In verse 25 through 27, Jesus is speaking to his 12 disciples about leadership in the kingdom of God. He says, you've observed how godless rulers throw their weight around, how quickly a little power goes to their heads. It's not going to be that way with you. Whoever wants to be great must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. So not only does Jesus set the example himself, but now Jesus is very clearly delivering this message verbally to his disciples to say, leadership in the kingdom of God has nothing to do with sitting on thrones and exercising power. It has nothing to do with having authority and dominion. It has everything to do with serving, with finding needs that you can meet and meeting them. That is leadership in the kingdom of God. And this is not what comes naturally for you and I. But that's leadership in the kingdom of God. I want to look last at being elevated by God. There are two very important elements that I want to close with from our, our text here. Number one, leadership is a calling. Look again at Matthew 20, verse 23. Jesus said, To sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it was prepared by my Father. See, this reveals that leadership in the kingdom of God is not something that we fight and claw and compete for. It's not a battle where we're dueling against one another and may the best man win. Leadership in the kingdom of God is about calling. It's about God ordaining who he wants to place in positions of leadership, who God is preparing to place in positions of leadership. Leadership is about calling in the kingdom of God. It's something that God does. Second thing that we see is in Philippians 2, verse 9. God is the one that elevates to leadership. Verse 9 says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him. Speaking about Jesus. And we see that word, therefore. The reason why God elevated Jesus and highly exalted him was because of all the stuff that went right before that scripture, which is what we just read that Jesus laid aside his power and glory. Jesus laid aside the throne in heaven and willingly took upon himself the form of mankind and became a slave. And think about that. He came 2,000 years ago, was born in a food trough. They didn't have running water and refrigeration. They didn't have toilets. They didn't have any of the common conveniences of life that we love and enjoy. I wouldn't have come way back. I would have come, you know, now. But Jesus willingly did that, set aside his own comfort, set aside his own glory to meet the needs of you and I. And this is why God elevated Jesus to the place of ultimate leadership and authority. But the key is, God did it. Jesus simply lowered himself to a place of servanthood. He lowered himself to a place where he could meet people's needs. And because he did that, because that was his driving mindset, that was his mentality and his spirit, because he served, God raised him up. And these two revelations can help you and I keep the victory over one of the most common sources of strife and division within the church, which is competition for ministry and leadership. Again, Matthew 20, verse 24 says, when the 10 heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. In Philippians 2, verse 2, Paul is writing to the church. He says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And so what they, both of these scriptures are addressing is the strife and the contention and the division that can come when we have an improper view of leadership. And if we understand that God is the one that calls leadership, God is the one that calls us to places of ministry and influence, God is the one that does that. And if we allow God to be the one to elevate us because we are serving... That goes a long way toward defeating this strategy of hell to sow division and strife and contention through this whole idea of competition. The question is, are you seeking to elevate and exalt yourself or are you trusting God to elevate and exalt you to whatever it is that he's called you to? I want to close with this scripture, Matthew 6, verse 4. Your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. God sees. You know, we have a tendency, we, you know, if you've been saved a while, you've certainly heard sermons about servanthood and you understand the the need to be a servant and following the example of Christ to be a servant. We understand all of that. But it's very easy to get into this routine where we understand we need to serve, and when people are around, and when people see what we're doing, okay, well, yeah, I'll serve. I'll, I'll pick up that trash. I'll, you know, I'll move those chairs. I'll do whatever needs to be done if I know people see. If I know people are watching, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm serving. But what about when no one's watching? What about when nobody sees? What about when you're here by yourself and you see something that needs to be done? Oh, well, let's leave that. Someone else will get it. God that sees in secret will reward you openly. And so this reveals, are you trusting in yourself? Are you trusting in your own ability to work and move and manipulate and and move up the ladder? Or are you simply trusting God, saying, you know what, God, you said to serve, I'm going to serve. Every opportunity I see, every opportunity I have to serve and to meet a need, I will take it. Whether people see or not, whether people find out or not, and God that sees in secret will reward you openly. And I'm telling you, this takes a miracle of the Holy Ghost. But there are literally thousands of opportunities all around us to serve. Whether that's in the church, and that ought to be the focus, that ought to be the primary way or place where we display this desire to serve, this desire to help and to be a blessing. This should happen in families. This should happen in marriage. This should happen parents and kids. And it should happen within the house of God. This should be the primary place where we see and seize these opportunities. But there is a world out there filled with need. There are opportunities every single day for you and I to display the mind that was in Christ to serve and to be a blessing. And God that sees in secret Will reward you openly. Let's bow our heads tonight. Every head bowed, every eye closed in reverence to God. Hallelujah. Jesus set the ultimate example of servanthood by being willing to leave his throne in heaven, to come down to this earth, to accept the limitations of time and space to take on the form of a human body so that he could live on this earth and ultimately pay the ransom for our sin. And he did all of that because we needed him to. We needed him to. Had he not been willing to do that, had he not been willing to lay all of that aside, and pay the ransom for our sin, not one of us would be able to make it to heaven. Every single one of us would have to suffer the judgment for our own sin because that's what we deserve. But Jesus Christ took the punishment that we deserve upon himself. He willingly accepted that. That was the whole reason he came was to accept that in our place to serve a need that we desperately had. And the offer tonight is extended to anyone here that is not saved, that is not a Christian. You've never been born again. You've met, never made a decision to repent of your sin, to receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers. If you want to do that tonight, we'd love to pray with you. If you would signal that tonight just by raising your hand, we'll, we'll pray with you tonight to receive Jesus Christ, to be forgiven of your sin and to enter into a relationship with the God that loves you. Anyone here not saved? want to give your life to Jesus, be born again tonight. Maybe you're backslidden. Maybe you were saved at one time, but you're away from God. You're not living for God. You're not living clean, but you want to rededicate your life tonight. Raise your hand, and we'll pray with you. Anyone here not saved or backslidden? God sees this hand here. Anyone else? Hallelujah. Anyone else? Praise God. Talk to Christians then. Servanthood is not a popular topic. It's not something that comes naturally. It's not something that is easy. It takes a deliberate decision to see a need and then meet it. But thank God you're filled with the Holy Ghost. You're filled with the Spirit of God that is able to transform you. And even though this may not come naturally to us, God is able to transform us so that we can function with the Spirit of Christ in us and that we can see needs and be willing to step in and meet those needs, be a blessing to others. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. This is true in finances, but this is also true when it comes to meeting needs. And God will open doors. God will show you opportunities. And then if we will step in and seize those, the blessing of God will rest upon your life. And you can have confidence that God sees and God will raise you up. And God uses that to prepare you for whatever place of ministry and leadership God has called you to fulfill. These altars are open tonight. If you raised your hand, I want to encourage you to come to the front and we'll pray with you tonight to receive Jesus. And these altars are open as we sing.